0: Oh, that's right, I don't need this, do I? Great. Well, oh, it's great to be with you this morning. getting to hang out with some old friends and some young friends too. Yeah, Paul. Uh, it's great to uh, to be here. I'm, I'm really glad I get to share a, a sermon from the Book of Acts. Uh, I, I was there at that singles conference, and it was a great conference. It was just the, the feel of it. It just felt spiritual. It felt deep. And by the way, there's even greater stuff to come. Speaking of Floyd Grosset, uh, because there's a conference coming up, uh, Labor Day weekend in Phoenix. So singles, although... We have one couple who won't even be qualified anymore for single conferences by then. But, you know, they can come anyway. That's pretty exciting. Jan and I knew Elaine when she was, well, Lainey. Uh, she was, I don't know, five years old or four years old. I remember our, our kids raised guinea pigs and she got their guinea pigs. And that's kind of cool. You know, it's pretty good. All right, Great. So, I'm not sure why I have a clicker, because I just I can just do that. But you know what? I'll I'll just use the clicker anyway. Great. So, so, uh, John asked me to kind of give a bit of an overview of the book of Acts. And uh, Acts is sometimes known as the Acts of the Apostles. But I think a more appropriate name, really, would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And one thing you're going to see, and hopefully you'll be reading it in the next few weeks while you're going through this series. And one thing I want you to notice is how many times... The Holy Spirit is mentioned just a few there in Acts one, two instructions were given through the Holy Spirit. Acts one, four through five, where where Jesus says to wait for the Holy Spirit, Acts one, seven, where they'll be given power from the Spirit, Acts one, 16. The Holy Spirit spoke to them through prophecies, 2, 1 through 4. The Holy Spirit fell on them, 17 through 18. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them, 4, 8. Peter spoke filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 4, 25. The Holy Spirit spoke through David, 4, 31. They were filled with the Spirit and the house was shaken, four, 5, 32. The Holy Spirit was witness to the resurrection, 6, 3 through 6. They, the, the, those chosen to serve would be known to be full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, as he spoke boldly, was full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 8.29, the Holy Spirit told Philip to go preach to that dude. Acts 9.31, the Holy Spirit strengthened, encouraged the church. 10.19, the Holy Spirit told Peter to go talk to uh, Cornelius. Uh, Acts 11.28, the Holy Spirit told Agabus, oops, changed that slide, uh, about a famine in the holy world. In the, in the Roman world, Acts 13, 2 through 4, the Holy Spirit said about Barnabas and Saul. You get the idea. Amazing. We see the Holy Spirit working in so many ways. There's a few more. What does this tell you? Because the book of Acts is really a story of how the church grew. And the Holy Spirit is a part of that. The Holy Spirit said about Barnabas and Saul. And, and the Holy Spirit works in many ways. And there's, I, I really think as a church, we need to become more aware of how he's working in our lives. In Galatians 5, it talks about being in step with the Spirit and, yeah. and, and all those things. But that's, that's another topic. That's not actually the topic of my sermon. Another thing, kind of just a little bit of overview of Acts. Another thing about Acts is Acts is a story. And, you know, it, it's tempting to read Acts and, you know, we've got the Ethiopian eunuch, it's a great one there, and, and there's, you know, the, the thing in, in Ephesus with the riot, that's a great one, and Paul telling a story. But really, Acts is a story, it's a story of the fulfillment of Jesus' command that we're going to read about in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's the story of growth. It's the story about how this small band of people really conquered the known world at that time for the, for the uh, gospel, for example, uh, the, the, Luke is not embarrassed to talk about numbers, you know? You know, honestly, as a church, we probably overemphasized numbers like 15, 20 years, honestly. But I, I don't know. I think we should get excited about numbers. In fact, as, if I understand it correctly, we're going to be added to just this morning over there at the Gore's house. There's going to be a... I, I, oh, wait. I better not give away that announcement, John. Sorry. I don't want to steal the thunder of that. Okay. But I hear something about that. But in Acts 2.41, it says there were 3,000 added that day. Acts 4.4, it says the numbers of disciples grew to 5,000. Acts 5.14, more and more men and women believed and priests were added as well. Acts 5.28, it says, you folks have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's pretty awesome. What a great charge. Acts 6.7, the number of disciples increased rapidly and large numbers of priests were obedient. Acts 8.4, those scattered preached the word wherever they went. Acts 9.31, the church grew in numbers throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Acts 11.24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Acts 16.15, the churches were strengthened in faith and grew in numbers. And Acts 17.6, these men have caused trouble where? All over the world. All right, great. So let's get to our passage, which is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, I hear that Sam said a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. Sam Hempel, is that right? True. No. That's true. But I'm sorry, it's kind of like a theme passage for the book of Acts. So if I am going to do a little introduction to Acts, I kind of have to go there. All right, so let's read starting in verse 7. So this is Jesus, kind of like his last words, essentially. In fact, it is the last red words in my book of Acts. So I guess it is his last words. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the dates. The father is set by his own authority, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to get the picture here. We have a room with maybe about 100 people in there. And, you know, they weren't rich people. They weren't powerful people. They didn't have their hands on the lever of political power. They didn't have money. They didn't have much education, and really, they were like hillbillies. You know, forgive me. I don't mean to disrespect your culture, but they were like hillbillies. You know, not your culture. I mean, if you happen to be from there, you oh, know. From the hills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the Poway Hills. But anyway, and Jesus says to them. You're going to bring my gospel to all Jerusalem. They're like, whoa, all Jerusalem. Man, that's, a, that's crazy. And then he says to Judea, and they're kind of looking around. Who's he talking about? All Judea? That's, that could never happen. And then he says to Samaria. They're like, Samaria, we hate those people. And they hate us. We're going to take the gospel to them? And then what's he say next? And to the ends of the earth. Imagine you were in that room at that time. You're like, you're ready to drop dead. Because they didn't speak Greek. They didn't speak Latin. Their culture, the Jewish culture, has almost nothing in common with the cultures. They lived in a province at the edge of the Roman Empire an insignificant province from the poorest region in an insignificant province. And Jesus says, you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the amazing thing is, they did it. Yeah. By the time we reached the end of this book, around 63 A.D., the gospel had spread across the Mediterranean world. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some qualities that I see in the early church that I believe explained what happened. But I'm going to say before we look at that, I would say we have probably more money in this room, more education in this room, more talent in this room, and we happen to speak the language that's spoken all over the earth. Do you think that a revolution could be started, even God through the people in this room? I think it could. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of something great. I want you to get the picture of this, that God could do through that. If he could do it through them, he could surely do it through us. Amen. Think about that. So I've got an outline of a five part outline or six. Depends on how you count. All right. Uh, point number one about these. This church is that there's just something about somebody's been around Jesus this was a jesus church and the impact of the personal ministry of jesus being around jesus that's a huge factor number 2 is powerful truth claims in other words there are some facts they had in their back pocket that kind of helped i'll talk about that a little bit and what we're going to see is is the 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 power of having been with Jesus and the power, for example, of that empty tomb. That's what launched the church and got it through the first generation. But then as the as the gospel moved farther away and we're in the second and third generation, some other factors, I believe, kicked in. I want to talk about those a little bit as well. The moral, ethical superiority of the Christians, how they stood out. The fact that uh, this one you might not have thought of, but the fact is, the intellectual superiority of the Christian truth compared to the other truths around them. And then last of all, uh, basically the fact that the church gave dignity and honor to those the world did not show dignity and honor to. So that's going to be our outline. All right. So let's go to Acts 4, 12 and 13. So point number one is this was a Jesus movement. Acts 4, 12 and 13. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note, these men had been with Jesus. Now, I hope the people that you meet in your neighborhood and at work are astonished by your life because you've been with Jesus. There's just something about a person who spent time around Jesus. They're not normal. You know, when these Jesus people came into your town, your town was never the same again. And, you know, in the the early centuries there, the, the world, they didn't get it. These people were not normal. I mean, ev- everything that would work to stamp out a movement of other people didn't work. Yeah. For example, they said, we're going to kill you all. Surely that would get them to back down. It didn't work. There are stories from the early church fathers where they would start a persecution in a city, kill the, 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 the elders and hoping that people would flee and stamp out the church. But what happened is hundreds and thousands would come to that city for the privilege of being persecuted for the gospel. That's what a Jesus person is like. The personal impact of this man like no other man. Yeah, I think about Paul. To say the least, Paul was transformed. You go, you go to Acts chapter 9. Paul was a persecutor of the church, the worst of sinners. And he became perhaps the most amazing evangelist in history. What was it? It's simple. He met Jesus. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And, you know, and, you know there's a sense in which it was a little bit more, you know, kind of in your face. To actually kind of walk around with the guy, I have to admit, but i 'm telling you we have four gospels, and we have Jesus jesus um, who healed the sick and, and Jesus who who was wiser than the, than the scribes and all the Pharisees. We need to be a Jesus movement, it needs to be about Jesus, we need to need to know Jesus, we need to meet Jesus on the road. We need to meet the Jesus, I guess, on Pomerado Road. He met him on the road to Damascus for us. I guess it's on the Pomerado Road. That is a road around here. Uh, There you go. All right. We need a personal encounter with Jesus to be a Jesus church. And I believe if we're a Jesus church, we're going to be a catalyst for change. Kind of pull that in there. We'll be a catalyst. for. But so my question is, have you had a personal experience with Jesus. Have you met Jesus? Have you thought about him? Have you pondered him? Have you allowed him to affect you? Think about these early Christians. I mean, the, the world, they couldn't figure him out. They, they, they'd never even heard of people like this. There's just something about people that have been around Jesus. Uh, point number two is powerful truth claims. Let's go to Acts 2, through 24. You know, and we've got some stuff to work with that's actually pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, I try to imagine. I want to share my faith as a Muslim. All right, what are the facts I have that they ought to be a Muslim? Um, I don't know, thirty-seven wives. I, I don't. I, I'm trying to think what it is. You know what I'm saying? Let, let's look at Acts uh, two twenty-two through twenty-four. It says here. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus Nazareth is a man accredited to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible to death to keep its hold on him. You know, they had some... Facts that kind of helped in spreading the gospel. Because, you know, Peter gets up and says, this Jesus who worked all kinds of wonders and miracles, it's not like people are saying, really? I hadn't heard about that, really? Nobody told me about that. I mean, he could stand in front of the crowds there in Jerusalem and said, you know, walking on water, raising the dead, healing the blind, uh, calming the storm, feeding the 5,000, all that sort of stuff. And that was kind of cool. The fact that Jesus worked miracles. In fact, if you look at their sermons, their sermons, kind of the outline of their sermon, let me see if I've got it in a slide here. I can't remember. Oh, okay, I don't. So the 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 outline of the sermon is something like this: Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of the Messiah. Therefore, guess what, folks? He's the Messiah. Jesus worked all kinds of miracles. He's Lord. He was crucified. He was raised from the dead. His tomb is empty. Repent and be baptized. That that empty tomb was pretty awesome stuff. All right, and, and you know because of that empty tomb, I mean there were what 500 eyewitnesses of his resurrection. Every single one of them, you could say, "We'll kill you unless you change your story." They'd say, "All right, go ahead and kill me." So that, that's one thing. It's kind of cool having a religion that has a leader who raised people from the dead. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's probably good to spread a little apologetics. Use that, you know, the Jesus series, the one we have at the church? Kind of use, There's some great stuff. I remember using that Jesus series with one guy who came in kind of like a Buddhist. We're just looking at the, at the fulfilled prophecies and the miracles. It's like, all right, all right, now I need to be a Christian. You know, it, it's sort of cool because, um, you know, in the Bible, it says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Raised in Galilee, despised and rejected, meek while accused, pierced, crucified, have his garments gar- gambled over, be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and come to Jerusalem and, and uh, provide purification from sins somewhere around 30 A.D. I don't know about you, that looks like Jesus to me. And so we have we a little bit of confidence here. It just so happens that we're right and the tomb is empty. I, I like uh, what in Acts 26, 24 through 27, where, uh, where uh, Paul is preaching. I think it's to Agrippa. And he says, hey, what I'm saying here is true and it's reasonable. So repent, be baptized. All right. Point number three. Point number three. This is I, I really want us to park on this one a little bit. I believe the lives of people who had met Jesus. And plus the fact that the tomb was empty. I believe that gave great power to launch the church. But you know what? As you get to 100 AD, 150 AD, the church is now, you know, 1,000 miles, 1,500 miles away from Jerusalem, and it's the second and third generation, and the church actually grew faster. So there must have been something else going on besides just that. I want to mention one, one of them, which is the ethical and moral superiority of the members. Of that church. They stuck out. They were different. Acts 17, 5 through 9. You know, if we're a Jesus church, we're going to live exemplary lives. A lot of people, they're not going to like it. But the ones who are looking for God are going to say, I need to join up with that group. And that's what happened to the early church. Acts 17, 5 through 9. But other Jews were jealous. See, not everybody was so happy about this stuff. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. A few of you, that's exactly what you were. All right. Before you came in. All right. And formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, These men have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. Yeah. Because when the disciples came into town, idol sales plummeted. Alcohol sales Went way down. Sorcery, scriptures or texts. They got burned in Acts 19 and in, 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 in Ephesus. They, they just came in. They just started burning their scrolls. Riots broke out. Right, I was in Ephesus a few years ago. That's where that right. Long live Artemis of the Ephesians. Long live Artemis of the Ephesians. Because the church, we're different. We don't, we don't get involved in the things that they get involved in. Yep. Come on. And, and it's not like people didn't know this. You, you, you can read the writings of the enemies of the church and, and they noticed this. These Christians were very different because our citizenship is in heaven. That's right. That's right. And hopefully we live that way. Our constitution is the Sermon on the Mount. Our Bill of Rights is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You can look that one up. You know, the Stoics and Epicureans, uh, the, the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, had this concept of what an ideal person was. And they had their seven qualities of an ideal person. If you look at those qualities, you just go right down the list, it's the same stuff you find Jesus talking about, pretty much. But, see, they didn't think that anybody could actually live that way. That's just kind of this... Sort of I, I, pie in the sky kind of thing. They thought, maybe a philosopher, maybe somebody who dedicated his entire life to studying the, the philosophy and, and living their life and had lots of money available to go and do this stuff, maybe they could possibly live that way. And then they had these Christians, <laughs> these unschooled, ordinary people, and they lived lives greater than any philosopher. Mm. That said something. And I'm telling you, if you start living that way, a lot of people, they're not going to like it. They're going to be jealous. They're going to try to poke a hole, right? You you experienced that, right? At work, you know, they hold you to a much higher standard than they hold themselves to it. You know that, right? But I'm telling you, it's that 5%. It's that 10% who are looking for God. And they're going to say, I'm going to join up with that group. Are you crazy? They're killing them. I don't care. I'm going to join up with that group. I'm going to read the words of, of, of philosopher Galen. Galen was kind of the, the, the most important physician in the, in the Roman world. Here, this is a quote from Galen. He said teach, about the church, their teaching of rewards and punishment in a future life led to a lifestyle not inferior to that of the genuine philosophers. This is a pagan talking about the Christians. He said to Galen, this fact was especially notable in the disciples' restraint and cohabitation. Amen for that, all right? And their self-control in matters of food and drink and their keen pursuit of social justice and their contempt of death. That's what Galen said. That's why they were able to revolutionize the world because everybody knew these people were different. You know, in our modern world, it's, it's a little bit hard. I think it's just a little bit harder for us than for them. Because the philosophies, because so many people around us supposedly have Christianity as their philosophy. Right. So I think it's a little bit more challenging for us to really be that light on the hill to, to stand out. So all the more then, let's just go ahead and stand out. Now, we're different not because we wear weird clothes. We wear more or less, I think, pretty much the same clothes. Maybe a little bit you know, more covered certain parts of the body. But more or less, we wear the same clothes. We eat the same food. But our Constitution is, like I said, the Sermon on the Mount. To us, the way to happiness is mourning. We're peacemakers. We're different. These people had a vision that changed their lives, and it impacted so that, I'm telling you, everybody in the Roman world knew about these Christians. I I really love what what, uh, Galen said there. You know, the first century, like I said, had less competition than we have, but I think we just need to be willing to be different. Not weird, but different. All right, uh, point number four, I think it is, if I'm keeping track, is that also... This is a fairly little known fact about the early church is they won the battle at the universities. See, the fact is, Christianity is the only explanation that makes sense. We're living in kind of like a post-Christian world. I don't know if you notice that. If you're on campus, you're starting to notice that. You know, it's different from when I was on campus. I'll tell you, right? Well, actually, I'm still on campus. But I'm retiring in five weeks, so I'm not going to be on campus anymore. But that's oh, so sad. You know? <sighs> I've been in college for about 45 years, you know. It's been kind of nice. But all things come to an end eventually. All right. Let's go to Acts 17. You know, if I had time, I'd park in this part for like an hour talking about the Christian worldview and what a good worldview is. It's, it's true. It answers the questions people care about, all those things. But I'm telling you, if you compare the Christian idea to uh, Eastern religion, to pantheism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, atheism, postmodernism, I'm telling you the Christianity provides the answers and no other religion, no other philosophy even comes close. That's what what Paul does here. I don't have time to read the whole thing. Uh, I'll read a little bit here. Uh, So he's in Athens. He's standing. And by the way, he was standing uh, right there on the Areopagus. That's where it was. That's where all the smart people hung out. All those PhD philosophy people. And Paul stood in front of the gathering of the smartest people in the world. And he said, let me tell you about something better than anything you know. It's pretty awesome. Some of us, I think, are intimidated by the scientists and all these smart people, I'm telling you, you got an advantage. You're right there wrong, okay? That's actually a fairly convenient thing to have in your pocket right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. We need to be bold about this. Anyway, verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that everywhere, every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And by the way, just, you know, he's finding common ground because the Stoics and the Epicureans, they're like, oh, yeah, that's a bunch of ignorance. He's finding common ground. I, I think if you want to reach out to an atheist, find common ground with an atheist. I don't know what it would be, but find it. You know, just loving everybody. But how about just serving the poor? I think they actually agree with that idea. Right, and, and then he says, but I want to tell you about something better. Because, see, uh, the 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 Stoics believed in a God who sort of Sort of coexisted with the universe, that the universe had always existed, and God is not a personal God, and, and, and the Epicureans believed in a distant God, an unknowable God and, Paul, and and Paul says, "Let me tell you about a God in whom we live and move and have our being. Yeah. Let me tell you about a God who knows the times and the places, and he 's seeking us so that we could find him and know him." This is a much better God. Yeah. And I'm telling you, by the third century, the schools of the Stoics and Epicureans, those universities were literally shutting down. Because the church provided the answers on the intellectual level. But I don't have too much time to park there. So I want to oh, There's the lecture hall of Tyrannus. All right. That's there in Ephesus. The, the back wall fell out. They haven't been using that school for a little while. <laughs> So, and by the way, if you look in Acts 19, it says Paul started a campus ministry and through that campus ministry, the entire province of Asia heard the word of God. So that's pretty powerful stuff. Campus, right? Oh, campus. campus. Yeah. Do you have any campus in this? All right. They're kind of quiet back there. Yeah. We're going to take the truth to the lecture hall of UCSD and, and Miramar College, right? Amen. There's some smart people over there. Don't be intimidated. I'm telling you, the truth that we have is uh, far beyond what they have. Anyway, um, um, uh, by the way, if if you look at that uh, Acts 17, Paul quotes from Aretas, who's one of the Stoic philosophers. Paul knew Epicureanism better than the Epicureans did. Paul knew Stoicism better than the Stoics did. I'm not saying you need to have this, you know, in the next five days. All right. But I'd say, you know, make sure you know what you're talking about when you're doing this. That would be a probably a good idea. All right. Next. Uh, and the church met the needs of the culture of that time. And this is a beautiful thing. I, I think about, about in Luke. Uh, by the way, at the conference in Phoenix, I'm going to be doing a, a, a little study on the book of Luke. Luke is the gospel where you see Jesus revealed through his ministry, through his healing of the poor and his reaching out to the sick and to his touching women and and lepers and the people that were were discarded and, and not respected. You know, the church became a place where the outcast came, where the foreigners felt like they were at home where peoples of different religions felt accepted. A- Acts 2, let's, let's look here. We, we've been studying this stuff. This is kind of the heart of our, our theme for the entire year. Acts 2, 44 and 45. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and to give to anyone who had need. Every day they committed to uh, continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Why? Why were they enjoying the favor of all the people? Because they were loving all the people and they were caring for them. Acts 3, 6 through 10. Silver and gold have we none. Can you relate? Well, some of you can't. Some of you have a little bit of silver and gold. All right. But. Peter and John and James, they didn't have any silver and gold. But he says, but what we have, we give you. That's the church. That was the church, the early church. And that needs to be the church today. What we have, we give you. I think about 1 Timothy 6. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Oh, I'm so far from that right now. I'm not even close. Hmm. I'm farther along than I was before on that. But see, Paul could say, if we have food and clothing, we're content with that. And he said, we, and he was serious about it. And this brought people into the church. Acts 4, 32 through 35, all the needs were met. Acts 5, 12 through 16, uh, they're meeting the needs and healing all the people. Jeremiah twenty-two fifteen and 16. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, so all went well. Is that, what it not, is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Not just helping people, but defending their cause, promoting social justice. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows and the distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. A great example was in Alexandria. This is 250 AD. There was a massive plague in Alexandria and people were dying like like flies. And what the pagans would do is if a family member got the plague, they would literally throw them out in the street. And so the Christians brought their carts, put them in their carts, brought them to their churches and tended to them and saved many. Others died. You can probably assume that many of the Christians died as well from exposing themselves to the plague. But you know what? The church grew. The church in Alexandria grew because people realized who was going to take care of them. People realized who was going to help them. You know, I'm proud of our church. I think we're doing a pretty good job in this area, but I think we can do more. I think we do more. I, I really appreciate uh, the work that's going down, down in, in uh, Tijuana with the health, health grades and all those other things. But I'm telling you, we need to be a city on a hill. The church, the early church was people would abandon. If they had an, a, a disabled child, they would abandon them on the hills. And the church went, they found those people, they brought them back in. In, in the early church, there's records where, where basically people were selling everything they had to, re- to redeem slaves, to free them from slavery, and, and the elders had to say, hey, stop doing that so much, you know? we got to need money for a few other things. Wouldn't that be great if the elders had to say, hey, stop giving so much money. Stop helping the poor so much. That would be a great problem to have, I'd have to say. Yeah. I'm not sure we have that problem. All right? and I, but I'm telling you, the women found a place in the church because they were treated as equals. Okay, every kind of person. The poor slaves. Slaves loved Christianity. Yeah, I could see why. I, I really like this quote from. Um, uh, Let me see. From Julian the Apostate. By the way, this guy Julian. This is uh, uh, mid fourth century. This guy Julian was the son of Constantine. You know, the Constantine who kind of made Christianity legal. Now, Julian wasn't too fired up about that. In fact, he tried to return Christianity, I'm sorry, Rome, to paganism. And here's what he said about the church. It's very interesting. He's he's saying atheism, but when he's saying atheism, he means the Christians, just so you know. They, he, they called us atheists because we only worship one God, which to them is, just, might as well just not worship any gods. They called us atheists. So anyway, Christianity has been especially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal. That there's not a single Jew, by that he means Christian, by the way. There's not a single Christian who's a beggar. And that these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He says, it's a scandal. Right? The world, it's a scandal. I mean, p- people's needs are going unmet. But the church is a place where people find help and hope. And of course, the spiritual needs are the most important ones for us to meet of all, I would say. Absolutely. So our our answer to suffering is compassion. By the way, uh, there's one more reason I think that the church spread. Let's go to Acts chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. Acts 5, verse 38 and 39. Now, I want you to catch a vision. I want you to go back. Remember that early part in the sermon. We're talking about Acts 1, chapter 8. I want you to catch a vision for what God could do through the people in this room. Because like I said, we have the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I forgot to point out there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, God gave him a Holy Spirit power right there. That's important to know. Alright, let's read Acts 5, verses 38 and 39. It says there, therefore, in the present case, this is Gamaliel. Gamaliel was not exactly a friend of the Christians, alright? He was trying to get him arrested. Uh, he was a Jewish, he was a Pharisee, a teacher. In fact, he was the former teacher of Paul. Actually, he probably still was Paul's teacher at this time. But he says, dudes, let's chill out a little bit. Let's not kill them, because if we kill them, they're martyrs. That might help them out, actually. So here, here's his advice here. He says, Therefore. In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. you only find yourselves fighting against God. Why did the church have an impact that is completely out of reason, of all sense, compared to what they had? Well, first of all, there's just something about a person who's been with Jesus. And to the extent we know Jesus, to the extent that we are like him, to the extent that we see him, we're impacted by him, we're going to become a powerful movement. But also, the empty tomb, it kind of helped. It kind of helped having the fact that the person who found out our religion raised Lazarus from the dead. That's kind of a nice little extra added thing there. But then again, it was the lifestyle. The Christians lived a life that from the outsiders, they, they couldn't even, they didn't even get it. They lived like the true philosophers and they had almost no education. Their only education was Jesus. And then there's the fact that they had the answers. Folks, we have the answers to every question people look and answer. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Is that the right thing to do? And also, we're going to show Jesus through our compassion. And all those things, don't forget, though, it just so happens that God is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. Now, we're going to finish up, but I want to go back. We're going to do the Lord's Supper now. So I'm going to go back to Acts chapter 4. We already read Acts 4 earlier on, but I want to go back there because I want us to focus in on the cross as we're about to share the Lord's Supper. Acts 4, we already read it, but Acts 4, chapter 4, verse 12. The thing back there says time's up, but that's because they only gave me 35 minutes. And I actually have 40. So I have two minutes and 40 seconds left. Perfect. It's perfect. It it even has an exclamation point. I I see it, by the way. I, I actually do see that. They don't need the exclamation point. All right. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's our Jesus. Salvation is found in him. It's our only hope. You know, like I said, it was Jesus people But who are Jesus' people? Jesus' people are people who see the cross and recognize what he did for them. Let's be thinking about the the cross. Let's be thinking about Jesus. Let us become a Jesus church. Uh, Let's pray together as we take the Lord's Supper. Father, we are thankful that Jesus went to the cross. I think about... Paul, who met him on the road there to Damascus, and he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus is the one who had the scars in his hands. He's the one who willingly offered himself. Father, we are so thankful. We're also thankful that he was raised in the dead. We're also thankful that that tomb is empty. And it tells us that our tomb will be empty. Our physical bodies won't be raised, but our souls, our spirits will be raised to eternal life. Father, we're taking the bread and we're taking the juice in remembrance, acknowledging together as a body that we rely totally on you for our salvation. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.